Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we do uh, culture and Renaissance Europe. We're going to do marriage. We're going to do universities and thought. And so we start talking about Renaissance Europe. What is it? What is the Renaissance? The Renaissance is the rebirth of Greek and Roman rational knowledge in Western Europe. For almost a thousand years, Christian revelation ran the show. And with the Renaissance, you get the rebirth, which is what Renaissance means, uh, rediscovery, reuse of Greek and Roman knowledge. When is this? There's lots of different ages. We're going with 1300 to 1550. Uh, there's certainly people who argue that it starts earlier. There's good evidence that it can end earlier. Depends on where you're talking. But about 1300 to 1550 or so. Why? Why does it happen? Well, there's a bunch of different reasons, but two of the big ones is you get Byzantine trade and refugees from the dying Byzantine Empire. Remember, in 1204, you have the Fourth Crusade sacking Constantinople. Constantinople was left a wreck. The Turks are on the move. Byzantine lands being conquered, and so refugees took off. And where did they go? A lot of them went to Italy. And they brought with them Greek and Roman knowledge. They brought with them their knowledge. They brought with them Aristotle. They brought with them Plato. Also Byzantine trade. Constantinople was a major center, was uh, the queen of cities in the Middle Ages, or in the, well, you, in Western Europe you call the Dark Ages. But the idea was Byzantine trade allowed for the trans transmission of knowledge. Transmission of stories. Transmission of Greek and Roman books. So trade plus refugee. And trade, as we've discussed, from Babylon to um, the Silk Road always brings with it knowledge. People always bring their knowledge with them. The second thing is the Black Death. The bubonic plague, the Black Death, came rolling through from Asia along with the Mongol armies, and killed 25 to 30% of people. It devastated cities. And so people needed answers. Why is this happening to us? And they went to the church, because the church was full of knowledgeable people. And he said, church, why is this happening to us? And the church looked at their Bible and said, God is punishing you because you are terrible, horrible people, which we've already discussed that the Christian church thought of people as dirty and sinful. And so, of course, here's our plague, the plague of Egypt and Noah, what happens to Job. It's, hey, you all are bad people. The problem is, is that good people started dying. Grandmama started dying. Priests started dying. People who were thought to have been good are dying, and it didn't work. Being good didn't protect you. And so people 
started looking for other answers for why these things happened. The church didn't have an answer, or its answer was unsatisfactory. And so the church, so people needed new answers. And so there's two ways of doing that. One is invent new ideas. Okay, that's hard. Inventing new ideas are hard. They didn't have the science. They didn't have the technology, the microscopes to see germs, to see bacteria. They didn't have the science to experiment, to see what happens if you get bitten by a flea. Do you get sick? Do you get not? So inventing new knowledge is hard. So the other thing, option B is, go back to knowledge you're not using but already have. And it turns out, if especially if you live in Italy, you are surrounded by Roman stuff. And the Romans were obviously awesome. You could see their buildings. And so, why not use their books? Maybe they know something about the world. They conquered it. Couldn't have been too dumb. And so the Black Death knocked the knees out of the church being the almighty, all-knowing answer to everything. And so people went looking for new answers. And they went to look at things they already had. And that was Greeks and Romans. Where does the Renaissance happen? In urbanized trade cities. Starts in Italy, but then goes to the Netherlands, and then goes to like Paris and London. It goes to capitals. Why? These, people, these cities have more people and more money. They're also more connected to newer ideas, to foreign peoples. So it's not a surprise. With more trade and more money comes the rise of a whole new class of people. That new class is the merchant class. They have money. This is the new wealth, the new rich, the nouveau rich. They have a problem. They have an advantage. They got money. They have a problem. No one cares. And go, wait, 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 wait. Why does no one care? Well, because your position wasn't based on money in the medieval world. Your position was based on land and title. Lord Snuffleupagus owns 10,000 acres. He's important. The king listens to him. Mr. Stupidhead can't have $5 million in the bank. No one cares. He doesn't own any land. No one cares. So the merchant class are relative or peasants essentially they don't have titles they don't have land they don't have anything distinguishing them and if you're a nobleman why would you get involved in trade you already have land you already have money you don't need to deal with trade with the middle east or peasants sell them stuff ew money was considered dirty Because you're taking advantage of people's wants and needs. Oh, you want something? How much are you willing to pay for it? Right? There's something inherently, like, shitty about that. You're taking advantage of someone who needs something, who wants something. 
And so there was a disdain for making money in the Middle Ages. You had land. You had peasants. The peasants made you wealthy. You had position. You had a title. You had respect of the king. That made you important. So the merchant class has a problem. They're wealthy, but they get no respect. And they want respect. They don't want to be treated like regular peasants. Smelly, stupid peasants. And so what they decide to do collectively, not, they don't get together and decide this, but basically this is, and this is what um, the middle class and the upper middle class do on their own anyway. It's how capitalism works. Is they decide they want to act like the rich. They've got the money to be at the same parties as the rich guys, as the nobles, so they want to act like that. So what do you need? You need education. You need to know the same stuff as they do. You need to look like they do. You need fashion. You need to look like the wealthy do. So you get the invention of fashion. Because then the nobil nobility say, whoa, you people looking like us. I don't want you people looking like us. I want to distinguish myself from you people. And so they use their money to buy even newer fashion. And so you get basically the invention of the fashion industry. Art. How do you prove that you're smart and you're educated and cultured? You buy art. Hey, look at my Michelangelo. Look at my Leonardo. Look at my Raphael. Because it says, one, I have the money to hire a guy, a really expensive guy, to paint a picture that I can then put on my wall. That does nothing. It just sits there and, and is awesome. The second thing is, I have enough education and culture to appreciate what a good artist is, rather than a mediocre or a bad one. And fourth, you get the public sphere. The idea that you do things in public. You support things in public that get your name recognized. We see this at universities with people's names, the Smith School of Business. So uh, on PBS, this, this show was brought to you by a generous donation from Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And the whole point of that is to, is to create a piece of culture that people see and then recognize to you. Go to Rome. Go to Florence. All the buildings the Medici's built all have their crest on it with the M. And you can walk around and go, oh, that's a Medici building. Oh, that's a Medici building. Oh, that's a Medici building. They were all meant to show off. So you, you made the city better. You made the culture better. You gave things. You shared your money in ways that showed off. Now, this is a very Roman thing to do. It's not a surprise. It happens in Italy. Because this is a very Roman thing to do. The Roman Republic is built on this. This kind of public largesse. You show you had wealth, but nobody cared that you had wealth. The wealth itself was meaningless. You needed dignity. You needed respect. And so what you did with your wealth is turn it into things that people could use. Plays and theaters. Later, the emperors will build baths and aqueducts. You build things, you plopped your name on it, 
and you said, look at me, I built this. And people go, woo, you're awesome. And you say, yeah, I know I am. And so now the merchant class has that kind of wealth. And so they are going to act like a Roman patrician. That's their model. They're going to get educated like the nobility or better than the nobility. They're going to get, because the nobility knows they don't have to have much of an education. The nobility are going to get their lands no matter what. So it's nice if you get one. But the merchant class says, we need an education to improve us, to improve our station. So you get education, you get fashion, we're going to look rich, we're going to act rich, we're going to speak rich. In England, you could just tell by the accent where someone's from and what class they're in. So the BBC accent, the received English accent, is the accent of the Queen. And so the BBC spoke in the most austere, noble, highest class version of English. You couldn't have the poor working man's accent and be a broadcaster. So we have these things. The, the newly rich merchant class wants to act rich. Wants to be taken seriously. And so what we see are these trade routes. These trade routes that come from the Middle East, from the Crusades. The Crusades make these trade routes. So they come in through Italy, or and from there they go into the Netherlands. From the Netherlands, they go into England and into France. From Italy, they go into Germany and into southern France. And these connections that are dominated by Italians and then later Dutch are connecting the Silk Road from China to the Middle East, from the Middle East to Italy, from Italy into the rest of Europe. So, we talked about education, what kind of education? And that is the rise of universities. We start to get European-style universities, multi-subject, all in one place, bringing the students to you, universities. And this is part of the revival of Greek and Roman knowledge. The Romans were successful. So we might as well study them. The Greeks were smart because even the Romans copy from the Greeks. So we better study them too. And so we get the rise of Plato and Aristotle and Caesar and Cicero and Marcus Aurelius. Every, every student learning Latin had to learn the opening phrase to Caesar's commentaries on the war in Gaul. Had to learn in Latin, all, all Gaul is divided into three parts. It's like the first thing you learn in Latin. And that's true into the 20th century. It's an it's a, it's a English schoolboy joke that they had among themselves. That other poor people didn't get because they didn't learn Latin. Because they were poor. And they didn't need to know Latin. And so we get the revival of Greek science, Greek philosophy, Greek drama but especially Roman politics, Roman war. Tacitus, 
T-A-C-T-I-U-S, who um, talks about government in Britain and talks about the, Germ the, the barbarians in Germany. How do you deal with barbarians? How do you deal with the other people who aren't like you? Livy, who talks about the decadence of the Caesars, of the, of the emperors. Um, so what, how not to behave if you want to stay in charge. Uh, the pinnacle of this kind of learning is St. Thomas Aquinas. Catholic saint, Catholic theologian. And what he does is combine Christianity and classical logic. Why? The problem is, and you get this today, the idea that science and religion are at war with each other. People felt that way in the 1200s. They say, no, 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 no. You can't use Plato. You can't use Aristotle. It, it, it attacks God. God is all knowledge. So God will let you know what you need to know. And St. Thomas Aquinas comes along and says, no, 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 no. No. Since all knowledge, all knowledge will lead you to God. That means any knowledge that you discover is godly, is good, that God wants you to know that. And so it doesn't matter if it's in the Bible, if it's from Revelation, if it's because God, like, zapped you in the middle of the night in a dream, and boom, you woke up and you're like, oh my God, I know how the universe works. Or if it's Aristotle observing Plato, Socrates, and it's the idea that you can combine essentially science and religion. The two aren't at war. They are actually complementary to each other. Now it starts, you have to understand, it starts with the position that there is a God, that that is a Christian God, that Jesus was on earth and was resurrected. Now that's belief. That's Christianity. That's religion. You believe it. There is no proof Jesus was resurrected, that there's no proof Jesus is God. There isn't. There's just not. You have to believe it. But for St. Thomas Aquinas, he says it doesn't matter because it is true. That faith and belief are as important as scientific fact and that the two go together. That if we had the science of Jesus' resurrection— what would it prove? It would prove he was resurrected. Boom. So that science reinforces faith, and faith reinforces science, is the idea of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so St. Thomas Aquinas actually has a proof in his book of ten ways you know God exists. He proves God exists, and he does ten things. Half of those things, if not more, are right out of Aristotle the prime mover. All, and, and Isaac Newton will take some of this too, but all, the idea that all objects are in motion, but they are only in motion because something else puts them in motion. Well, what must exist? For Aristotle, that was called the prime mover, a thing that moves objects, but is not moved itself. St. Thomas Aquinas comes along and says, that, hey, hey, that's God. Obviously, that's God. In a way, this is what Augustine does with Plato. 
when Plato invents the ether. Augustine, a thousand years later, comes along and says, see, that's heaven. And so what we get is the combination. Instead of the fight, which had been going on for the last 500 years, we get the combination of faith, of religion, and science. So we get the rise of medieval thought in the universities. We get Dante and the new cosmology. Uh, the most famous, he writes the Divine Comedy, but the most famous part of this is the Inferno, the Hell. And that Hell is nine circles, each one getting farther away and thus colder from the center of the earth, from, from, from heaven, from God. We get Petrarch, a poet, who's going to invent, for all intents and purposes, love and emotional power. Him and the writers around him are going to invent love as an emotion rather than an intellectual understanding, which is what the Greeks thought of it as. What Plato, in his uh, Apology, describes it as. For the Greeks and the Romans, love is not an emotion. For us, in the 21st century, it is. It's in the heart. For Greeks, it was in the brain. And that's Petrarch. Petrarch is the one who kind of creates that change. We get the invention of what's called the great chain of being, a hierarchy of all relationships. That you go from God to the kings, to the Lord, to the father, to his wife, to the children, to the animals. That, that in every relationship, there is a chain of relations and it's not a ladder. You don't move up and you don't move down. But it binds you to all other parts. So the king is the head of the country. But the husband is the head of the house. And the pope is the head of the church. And they all have basically the same powers. Because they're all the head of a thing. And they have relationships to the people above them and relationships to the people below them. We've kind of talked about this with Confucianism. They have to obey the people above them and protect the people below them. A, a husband has to protect his wife and children. A king has to protect his lords and people. The pope has to protect the church and the members of the church, fellow Christians. brings us to marriage. Marriage radically changes in the Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, I should say. Now it changes in the cities, primarily. It doesn't change. It continues to operate the same way in the rural areas. Uh, among the nobility, it continues to work the same way. But in urban areas, especially for that merchant class, it's going to change. Why? Well, if you want a good handbook on this, read your Romeo and Juliet. Go to Shakespeare, open up to Act 1, and start reading. The fight between Tybalt and Benvolio is cool, so you can, you can read that part. But go to the part where Paris goes and hangs out with Capulet and says, Hi, I'm awesome, and I'd like to marry your daughter. And so one family still had a say in choosing partners. 
Capulet says, I don't know. She's 12, and Paris says, well, lots of women are married by her age. She's actually kind of getting old. And it's like, yeah, I know. I know. But I like having her around. And, you know. But it's nice. Thank you. I am flattered because you are awesome. And then he calls in his wife. Hey, wife, what do you think about Juliet marrying Paris? And, Ju and the wife is like, oh, my God, Paris is awesome. Our daughter couldn't do better. Like, well, go see what she thinks. And so Lady Capulet goes out and there's a very famous scene. A man, such a man, where she argues, she, she, she pre presents the position that Juliet, at 12, 13 years of age, should marry Paris, who's probably in his early 20s. So remember, this isn't weird. And we're going to talk about why in a moment. But people got married in their teens. People got married at 13, 14, 15 years of age. Certainly by 20. When you get to Pride and Prejudice, the idea that Jane is like 20 years old is a scandal. Her mother is incensed. The other daughters... Or like, when, Jane's going to get married? When, when are we going to get married? And remember, the youngest daughter in the family in Pride and Prejudice is 16, and she's married. She gets married by the end of that book. And she's happy about it. She goes to her sisters and says, oh, I'm the youngest, and yet I'm the most mature. Ha, 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 ha. Why? Well, you didn't live that long. You also had to have a lot of children because children didn't live that long. Child mortality was high. Female mortality in childbirth was high. The average age you could expect to live is about 40 years of age. Now, could you live older? Sure, yeah. But you could also die way earlier. You get kicked by a horse, you're dead. You're not going to a hospital. You're not recovering. Also, you're dealing with a lot of manure and you cut yourself. Like you're fertilizing the fields and you're using sharp implements and you cut yourself. Ooh, that's a, oh, I cut my thigh. And you go and rub it with your dirty hands. Well, three days later, that's an infection. Three days after that, you're dead and you were 22. Childbed fever. Women would give birth, seem to be okay. Three days later, they got a fever two days, three days after that, they were dead. They, had, they got sepsis, they got infection in the blood, and they died. No one understood that, but it was common. So families chose partners. Families had a say. Because what does a teenager know about choosing a good mate? Nothing. You people are terrible at it. How many exes do you have? How many people did you go out with? How many people did you have a crush on? That turned out to be a bad choice. You're terrible at choosing. Even with love and the ability to choose whoever you want, we still have a 50% divorce rate. So we're still in the 21st century bad at choosing. So families had a say in this. It was the marriage was the most important economic thing Pete, the entire family would do. And so they couldn't allow their daughter or their son, to mess it up. 
see Pride and Prejudice. See Romeo and Juliet. The idea that Juliet marries Romeo is a disaster for her family. They don't want her marrying Romeo. She says so. She's like, if they find you, they will kill you in the balcony scene. But, so that's easy. And so who did you marry? Well, we, we kind of talked about this. You marry your cousin. This is Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice. Her cousin, the, the minister, the prelate, comes by and says, uh, I like to marry Lizzie. That's who she's supposed to marry. He's a second cousin or a first cousin. But uh, you marry your second cousin. You either marry the, the son of a neighbor so that your lands can stay together and you stay in the area, or you married a cousin, especially a second cousin. And you may go, oh, that's gross. Well, no, it's the opposite. One, they don't have any idea of genetics, so it doesn't matter. Two, you're far enough away that it's not like you grew up together, so it's gross. Like, I have second cousins. I have, I have Puerto Rican second cousins. I have no idea who they are. I knew them as kids. I don't know where they are. They're cousins. I've seen them at weddings. But they're my cousins' cousins. And so if I married one of them, that's far. These are not like... These are not the people you grow up with every day, necessarily. And so it's far enough that it's a different family, and yet it's close enough that you know them. Your parents know each other. Like, I don't have a good relationship with my second cousins, but my mom knows who they are. My father knows who they are and have known them since before they were born. When they married into the family, when they married their brothers or their brothers-in-law. And so their relationship to my second cousins is different than my relationship to a second cousin. And so that's who you married. Families had to say. Now, kids could veto this. They could go, no, I don't want to marry. No. Ew. Ew. You see this in, in Game of Thrones in the second season where Walder Frey is making an alliance with the Starks and they go to Rob and they say, you have to marry one of my the Frey daughters. And he's like, oh, all right, which one? And they go, I don't care. You marry any of them. You got to marry one of them. So you could veto any of them. And basically the daughter would have a veto too. But since Rob Stark is sexy and awesome, they're all going to say yes. But it's the people getting married still had a veto. They weren't forced. This is not arranged. But your veto was like, well, I don't want to marry my second cousin, Sicily. I'll marry her younger sister, Anne. And that's kind of how it worked. Look at Pride and Prejudice again. Now, in the cities, money is more important than land. Obviously, you can't own 10,000 acres in a city. It doesn't work. And so what happens is, since you know you're going to inherit land, you get married at a younger age. You can get married at 15, 16. You know one day I'm going to inherit 10,000 acres. So it doesn't make any sense not to get married young. So lords and noblemen out in the countryside got married young. You, you, you hear the child, like, they're, they're, they're engaged to be married in their 9 and their 10, things like that. 
And the idea was they are these are families that are so important. The alliance between the families matters. You have a son. I have a daughter. we got to keep our families together. So they're going to get married anyway. So let's just make an engagement. They're engaged at 9 and 10. And at 15, they'll get married. And that's what happened. But in cities, money matters. Not land. And it takes longer to earn money. This is why... You, gentlemen, at 14, did not date 18-year-old senior cheerleaders in high school because you were had nothing. You didn't have a job. You didn't have a car. You didn't have any money. You couldn't have any freedom. And even when you were 18, you were still dating 16-year-olds. Why? Because when you were 18, the 18-year-olds in your class, the 18-year-old cheerleader you had a crush on, is dating a 22-year-old at the community college, where you are now at. So marriage gets delayed because men need money. They don't have money at 15. They have to earn it. They have to make a reputation. They have to make savings. They have to impress the fathers of daughters that they're worth something. So Juliet might be 13. Romeo and Benvolio are like 14, maybe 15. Tybalt and Mercutio. Tybalt might be in there too, to be honest. Mercutio is probably about 18, and Paris is the man of the group of the young men. He's, notice he doesn't hang out with any of these other guys. He's in his early 20s, and he's an adult. He's a man. He's got a reputation. He's got money. He's got position. Capulet's family is like, Capulet, Mrs. Capulet is, oh, out of her gourd. The nurse is like, oh, my God, what a man this is. He is a stud and a half. And so what happens is men have to get older in order to have the money to impress the fathers and the families of the women they want to marry. And so the women's age stays the same, but men's age of marriage gets older. And so what you get is a 25-year-old man marrying a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old girl, teenage girl. Why? Because the marriage age of women stayed the same. They're still eligible. There's the problem of their sexuality. Like the older they get, the more likely they are going to do something naughty. Notice Pride and Prejudice again. You've got four or five daughters, and it's the youngest one who's like, woohoo, let's hang out with officers. Let's sit on officers' laps. Let's do all of this dancing. And like the mom is like having to keep them apart. And she's like, oh, thank God, Jane and Lizzie oh, don't want to do anything naughty. Whew. But it's all about female sexuality. Is it danger? But the longer you go before... Now, you could have all the sex you want in marriage. That has always been allowed. Be fruitful and multiply is the first commandment in the, in the Bible. You could have sex... All you want in marriage, but outside of marriage, nope, 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 no. Sex was to have children. That's its purpose. If you happen to have fun during it, good for you, but don't tell anybody about that. Because that's the thing that sends you to hell. It's to have children. 
So that's okay. Children are a good thing. So you should have lots of sex. In marriage. So what do we do? We marry our daughters off as early as possible because the older they get, the more likely they are to do the thing that we don't want them to do. So we marry them off, and then they could do all they want, and nobody says anything about it. So we have men at 25 marrying women who are about 14 or 15 years of age. What's the effect of that? The effect is the women outlive the men. Remember, the average age is 40. You're an old man at 40. Now, I know there are books and whatnot who say, well, you know, you could expect to live as old into your 70s. Yeah, no. If you were 70 in 1350, you were ancient. You were so old. Like, I remember as a kid, there were over-the-hill parties at 40. I remember going to them. And they'd have balloons, and it'd be over the hill, and it'd be like they would, they would, my, my parents' friends would, would like get pictures and then put like giant gray beards on it and make, you know, and this was 40 years of age in the like 80s. Now 40 years is like still young. 40 years is just getting started. But I remember, and in my lifetime, 40 was considered over the hill. It was the start of you getting old. So in the ancient world, yeah, that was old. 40 was old. 50 was real old. 60 was ancient. And 70, 70 was so old, people didn't remember a time you weren't alive. I mean, th this is Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is queen from 1835, 36 or so. To 1900. She's queen for 65 years. She was queen so long, she outlived nearly everybody who could remember a time before her. People didn't, simply didn't remember Queen Victoria not being queen. So the Middle Ages is even more top-heavy, or bottom-heavy, I should say, about youth. Because people died all the time of diseases, of age, of sickness, and your, your, your diet wasn't very good. And so if you lived to be 40, hey man, awesome. But that meant men hit 40 first. And they were more likely to die, and so they did. So women outlived their men. Now what do we do with their money? Money is fungible. Here's the thing. I want someone to take care of my kids. I got a couple of sons. I like them. I want someone to take care of my sons. Who can I guarantee will take care of my kids and give them a good education and get them started in a good business? My wife, the mother of those children, or my younger brother, a man, but a man who has his own wife and kids. He's a good man. He's not a cheat. He's not a liar, but he has his own wife and children. Who can I guarantee? Well, my wife. I may like my brother, and my brother may be a good person, but do I, can I guarantee that the $5 million I give him is going to only go to, his, to my kids? Take a look at Cinderella. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. The father marries the stepmom, and dies. 
and he leaves money. There's plenty of money. That is not a poor family, especially in the early movie, in the, the animated movie in the 1950s. That is not a poor, poor family. So why is Cinderella considered so poor? Because all of the money the stepmom takes for herself and her two daughters, she doesn't share it with Cinderella. She doesn't use it the way the father of Cinderella intended. And so what do you do? And the answer is you leave the money to your wife. You don't give it to a man, even if he is a brother. You give it to the wife. Now, that's huge because in the countryside, land goes to the man. Land goes to the next male heir. It doesn't go to women. But money is fungible. Money can go anywhere and be used on anything. And so it goes to my wife. That now gives my wife independence. She doesn't need another man. She doesn't have to get married. She's got money. And she's going to use that money on herself, which is perfectly fine because she was my wife, and our children, which is exactly what I want. And so she, what does she spend that money on? Giving our kids a classical education, especially my daughters. Why? Because she, my wife, realizes how unprepared she is to inherit this money. If we're at the early part of the Renaissance, she hasn't been trained. She hasn't been educated. She was educated how to be a wife, not how to be an independent, wealthy person. She doesn't know how to make investments. She doesn't know how to run a business. And she will realize real quickly she's at the mercy of other men. And that's bad for her. But she can do, and she can't really do much about it for her. But she can change it for her daughter, for our daughter. And so the idea is that you get a classical education. You also get support for the arts. The idea of patronage. Culture. The idea is that women pour money into the arts. Poetry. Painting. Sculpture. As a way of showing off family success. They don't have the man around to do it. So they have to find another way. And they can't do it militarily. They can't do it politically. Those options are locked off from women. They can't go into the government. So they have the money. So what do they do? They make sure their kids are educated so they can marry better and have better lives themselves. But also, they invest in the arts to show off their family. Again, go to Pride and Prejudice. The person who is making sure the, the cousin, minister cousin, is living a good life and being a good minister is a widowed woman. And he is very sure to make sure she's happy with him. To the point that he brings Lizzie by to approve of their marriage before he does it. So the idea is that you have patronage. Women become extremely important in patronage of culture, of art. And this gives them in the increased role in society, which gives them more independence. So as Renaissance women get richer, 
as Renaissance society gets richer, and that means Renaissance women get richer, they get more education and they get more independence. That is the opposite of the Islamic world that we talked about. And so, this doesn't happen in the countryside. This doesn't happen in the rural um, peasant. Peasants don't do this. Lords don't do this. They have different lives. But this is happening in the cities. Men, now because it has to do with money, men are getting older. Women are getting more education and more independence. Thank you.